Is it okay with you? We're a dancing team. We're a dancing team. We're a dancing team. We're a dancing team. We're a dancing Good. I was going to say good evening all there, but uh, it's actually good morning because this is a Sunday AM. We are recording this episode of the Movie Scramble podcast because we are nothing if not dedicated to you, the listener. <laughs> no, we have two now. Two confirmed. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> Excellent. We have two. They're starting to breathe and multiply. I'm your host, Thomas, and I'm joined by John this morning. How are you, John? Uh, very good, Thomas. Another podcast under our belt which is always a good thing and an, an early morning one as you say so yes i uh, looking forward to our discussion here as well it'll be good I can, see, I can see the window at the back of you and i can just see the trees blowing like crazy yes well I, I live at the bottom of a hill so it does get a wee bit windy at times see with every episode i'm giving a little bit more information about where i live and everything so eventually <laughs> the, my fans and my stalkers will be able to track me down <laughs> And maybe how are you doing? I mean, I'm able to map out John's exact house, so I'm thrilled. I know exactly what room he's sitting in. He just keeps pivoting slowly around the house. I'm like, yes. I know that that window might be easier to climb in than the other one that he usually sits in. <laughs> <laughs> and you're sitting in a new house these days. You've moved because of your stalkers and fans. Uh, yeah, um, good. I mean, it's been a little bit stressful at times. Um, you know, the usual, does that look straight? I don't think you've painted that properly. Um, all that sort of thing. But I've got podcast space now. I have like a proper like desk and set up um, up in the attic, which is probably the best place for me. So yeah, looking forward to chatting about this this morning. It's been a, a long time coming to get the three of us back together. So excited. Exactly. There's a kind of Stephen King vibe going on in that attic. Don't ask me. <laughs> Why I'm feeling that, but it's just something about it. I am Kathy Beats to Jones or James Tan. Yep. <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with that there, but yeah, that's okay. What a Valentine's Day card that must have been. <laughs> well, the date of recording of this podcast, I don't know if you're going to get a chance to hear it, but it's the 16th of February, so it's not long after Valentine's Day, and in typical movie scramble fashion, we are not going to talk about romantic films. Why not? We are indeed going to speak about the film that has been decimating the Oscars. I am, of course, talking of Bong Joon-ho's Parasites. Now, this film has came has been released with an amazing, incredible amount of hype. Because you know it's like sometimes a film can be overhyped and you go and see it, it's never going to live up to the expectations you've placed upon yourself. But I did think that this is an excellent film. Really, really enjoyable. A lot of depth to it. Mary, since this is your... This is the first time I've seen you in a long time. How about you go first? You've seen the film I mean, most recently as well. What I was, was your thoughts on the film? It's not the first time I've seen you, but how fucking creepy <laughs> does that sound? <laughs> I finally sat down to watch the film last night. It really, really it held my attention the whole time. Like you, I think I was a wee bit sceptical going in because there was so much hype about it. And as we kind of touched on earlier, it's like, oh my God, Asian cinema. And it's like, I've been watching this for a lot, like this, films from Asia for a long time. I wasn't sure if it was going to feel any different to anything else that I had watched, but actually I, I loved it. Um, it obviously centres around two families at sort of different ends of the socioeconomic scale and how one family sort of usurps the sort of social norms and works their way into this kind of high-class family who live in a really fancy house in Korea. 
I felt conflicted watching it because the sort of the con artist family at times you're like god these aren't really nice people and what they're doing it's wrong and they're almost kind of mocking these these people the park family living in the big house and it's like is that really justified sure they're not happy with their own circumstances in life but is it right that they're sort of basically taking money from them that they shouldn't be but actually other times you're like they, ha- they do have a really shitty existence and people really look down their noses at them and there's that kind of feeling of, of empathy and I th- it definitely hooks you though it's not just a kind of it starts off as a kind of sort of classic kind of screwball comedy of errors type thing and it's very kind of over the top with its sort of nudge nudge wink wink to the camera sort of thing but as you said Thomas it has loads of depth and as the film evolves it definitely picks up a lot of different angles that kind of some of which really make you hold your breath some of which make you gasp some of which make you laugh and it just yeah there's there's so much to it and I think sort of picking up from what I took from Snowpiercer and Bong Joon-ho clearly has a being his bonnet about class divide and different sort of sections of society. It kind of really picks up on this again and sort of points out the the unfairness and the injustices and uh, the wealth gap, essentially. Indeed. You kind of like refer to the kind of the, the class divide type thing. Um, the movie, the name Parasite, Clearly, when you kind of watch it, you think to yourself, this is also referencing the, the family who are mm-hmm. leeching off mm-hmm. the, the rich family. But the director even said in the marketing, it didn't, that wasn't the case. It was a dual meaning. And you've also got, obviously, the poor family conning the rich. But you've also got the rich family leeching off the poor because they can't do anything for themselves. Yeah. And it's not just a, let's hate the rich or let's attack the poor. It's, it's a very... It's not subtle in its themes. Mm-hmm. But... It's it's well nuanced, I thought. Yeah, it does make you think. It's like, you know, who has been taken advantage of here? Really, like, you know, who is who is the victim in all of this? And I, and I think as the film sort of progresses, your opinions do veer quite wildly between one end of the extreme and the other. I, I don't think there's any sort of straightforward... This isn't a like a wealthy bashing film or whatever. I do think you kind of veer towards different opinions as the film continues. Yeah, we spoke about quite a lot about themes there, and John, it's you, you you mentioned before we went on the air, it's a difficult film to speak about without talking about spoilers. The trailer for Parasite does mention the kind of main plot of the film I've just mentioned, but there's so much more to it. John, how can you kind of describe that without giving it away? Well, it's, like Mary said, it's a socio-economic kind of theme that sort of runs through it. That's the main part of it. But I don't think any of the characters in it are particularly evil or bad. Mm. They're they're all just trying to do what they can for themselves, trying to get a leg up. That you mentioned the, the actual title of the film, Parasite. It works on several different levels, like you say. The people, the poor people, are regarded as being parasites, but within their own living environment, they have the stink bugs, which get fumigated very early on, and the stink bugs are parasites that are living off them as well and the the area they're living in people are sort of leeching off of them in terms of their class and their inability to actually get a job there i mean the very first scene of it they're folding up pizza boxes because Mm -hmm. that's all they can do and they're getting paid like a pittance for it and of Mm -hmm. course uh, the the father uh, makes a complete mess of it one in four (laughs) i really loved that when uh, they were talking about 
all the pizza boxes and saying one in four of these pizza boxes are just a, a complete write-off and the father's just standing there looking sort of sheepish <laughs> to the side, not really concentrating and the rest of the family are just looking at him going, come on, you know, you need to get a leg up here, you need to get on with this. About 30 minutes into it, one of the, the characters uh, says, oh, so we're moving to the next phase already. And at that point you think, well, this isn't quite what I was expecting here. This is something slightly different. And it moves into different territory from there. As you say, we're not going anywhere near spoilers. I would urge people to watch it because it's a film that really rewards your uh, viewing if you're actually going to have a wee bit of patience with it and try and get into the themes and everything as well. I think it's one of these films, it's subtle, but it's pretty good actually yeah enjoyed it i also thought it kind of touched on luck maybe a wee bit because obviously there's the presence of this kind of lucky stone but also like the dad who is known kind of throughout the film as mr kim um at one point says you know we're living in an era where you know 500 people apply for a security guard job and it's like what what is the difference between him and mr park who obviously seems to be involved in some sort of technology or whatever you know could these people like you know one decision in their life could have taken them maybe the other way and i almost feel like it's kind of luck that they've happened upon this family and luck that they've been able to sort of bring each other family member in in different jobs like driver housekeeper tutor all that sort of thing and i i feel like it's it's one of those kind of things where it's like where did mr park's life go so right that the dad character's life went so wrong and he is, you know, not folding pizza boxes properly and, and not getting paid properly for it. And I do think that kind of that kind of permeates the film a wee bit. It's like where did how did they end up so lucky and fortunate and wealthy and that family are living in a basement where somebody pisses on their living room window like every mm. other night. Yeah, it does touch on that, doesn't it? You you see quite early on that they they're not leeches. They, they're just trying to get ahead. They're trying, or sorry, they're trying to get a leg up more than anything else. But they work really hard at it. And they also mentioned quite early on that the father had a number of jobs. He was running various businesses and everything. And that's part of the reason why they are in the position they're in, because they've lost so much money investing in shops and cafes and all sorts of things like that. And as you say, it's, it's just luck that at some point you, you get a leg up, you get recognised for your talents, or it, again, it might even be who you know. There's obviously the same sort of classified in South Korea as there is everywhere else. And if you're in a certain socio-economic group, you have got more chance of getting something because of the people you know and the people that are around you trust you because you're part of the same sort of group as them. It's the difficulty in actually breaking into that group. And that's kind of touched upon uh, the the son says, do I fit into this? Do you see me fitting into this group? And uh, the daughter who's tutoring doesn't really give him an answer because she kind of knows what the answer is. And she doesn't want to, to, to lose him as a tutor. And she obviously regards him as a friend as well at some point. So it's all got to do with that as well. Like you say, it's luck. With and it starts off with the scholar stone, yeah. and what they say, what they say about the scholar stone is, oh, these are regarded as being very lucky. But again, the 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 young boy in it, he actually has some sort of affinity with the scholar stone, and if he says, I feel like I'm carrying this with me everywhere I go. So, I mean, what does a stone do? It weighs you down. 
That's the, that's what I took from that. That he's always feeling kind of weighed down, even though it's meant to be lucky. He's not really lucky at all. You kind of mentioned about like the, the, the family of grafters. You know, they may have like the, the, the poor family as a Kim family. They do they do con uh, the Park family, but when they get into the house, they are working. They are doing their job, and there's not a maliciousness at first. But they, without going too spoilery, they do start going too far. I believe start orchestrating and manipulating events to for their own outcome and their own benefit. And yeah, once they're in that position, they do graft and they do work, but it's at the expense of other people who are innocent, really, in their deception. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and essentially people who are of the same socioeconomic class as them. So it's almost like they're doing the dirty on their own kind, if you want to put it that way, like the group that they feel like they belong to. Like they're not. Yeah, they're sort of laughing at the ridiculousness of, you know, the the art therapy and all oh, that the young boy child is a genius and all like they are kind of sort of poking fun of at the the mother's neurosis. But also, you know, the people that they affect in this are people that like them are, are need to work for a living and, and need the money. So it yeah, that's why I was so conflicted about them, because it was like they were doing the dirty on their own sort of like group of people, if that makes sense. It does, mm-hmm. and I find the fact that there's like kind of conflicting feelings towards the characters is perfectly fine. There's nothing simple about the film. There's nothing simple about the characters. It should make you, it should challenge you. We do mention uh, we're not going to talk about spoilers and things that come. You can't see this, but you can't see the twist coming. I don't know how you could. But what the film doesn't do is change tone or mood on a whim. You can feel it building. You can feel the tension. You know something's going to happen. You just don't know what. But near the beginning of the film is the actor who plays Mr. Kim. He's very funny. He's got a deadpan uh, delivery to him. And yeah, he's just he's a prototypical straight man, so to speak, in comedy. And he's just got this kind of like deadpan facial expression consistently. Like every time there's a comedy, he's just, he's there. Mm-hmm. So did you get that? I just thought it was really, really funny for having really to do much. Yeah, less is more with that performance. It really is at the beginning. He doesn't need to be a, a comedic character. He just is, just in the writing and in the way he does uh, the, the actual performance as well. He comes across like a straight man, but yes, he's he's magnetic. You, you, you're looking to him in every scene to see exactly what he's doing yeah. as everything else sort of unfolds around him. And he is obviously very still and he doesn't give an awful lot away, but yes, it's very entertaining, really is. I really love the scene as well, sorry, where they were oh, making yeah. him learn lines for his con. And they were like, no, 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 like, you're doing that too over the top. Your emotions are up here. You need to bring them right back down. But it was like the first time he'd ever sort of really expressed himself. So it did seem so over the top because he had been so straight up until that point. And the fact they were making him learn lines, like, oh, I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I've always said it takes a very talented actor to play a bad actor uh-huh. in a scene. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's incredible, and that was absolutely... That's the thing about the film, it is genuinely hilarious. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so many scenes, it's, it's really kind of just laugh out loud, and you kind of touch the kind of naive aspect of uh, the Park mother. Like, what I thought was really weird as well is that Mr Park and Mrs Park always referred to each other as, like, Dasong's mother, or Das... Like, they never referred to each other by their Christian names. You know his name is Nathan Park, because there's a sign up and, like, there's loads of posters up in the house, like, and for his techie company, but I can't remember mm-hmm. actually hearing her first name. Do you know if I remember right? Maybe I actually think it was always kind of case like Mrs Park and, like, mother and things like that, mm-hmm. and it is that kind of... 
that's a very kind of class thing as well. You wouldn't really get that in the lower classes. Like, people referring to each other by titles. And it's almost mm-hmm. like they were doing that. Were they doing that just in front of the, the help, so to speak? Mm-hmm. To, to let them know this is how you address us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I just thought she was like your typical, like, had far too much money, lonely housewife, didn't know what to do, do with it. Like, oh, my kid must be a prodigy because, you know, he likes to scribble with some some crayons and I really like that kind of again it kind of made me sort of old-fashioned kind of screwball comedies because she was this sort of over-the-top character again to her hu- husband who was very very kind of straight and you know would just give an eye roll or you know deliver a line really sarcastically he wasn't the, he was a, a neat kind of neat contrast to her and you do feel a bit sorry for her because she is just quite you see something like the piss taking at them so easily mm-hmm um, they don't kind of like the mental capacity to kind of stand that they're getting like, the piss taken out of them but at the same time she then do other stuff you feel less empathetic towards her because again your own kind of class prejudice comes in and you find it hard to feel sorry for people mm-hmm. that are this wealthy mm-hmm. maybe not so John John was probably in board room <laughs> John was like oh that reminds me of my summer house that looks small <laughs> that reminds me I better go and uh, feed the help <laughs> What's this going to say about the sort of naivety of the the wife? Some of that is actually borne out by uh, previous trauma, which uh, I, I won't bother uh, talking about because it is sort of a a third act revelation, if you like. But it's mentioned very early on, and then she, she she's quite buttoned down. She's quite protective of her child, so that's why, in a way, she's going to extremes with him and calling him a prodigy. Um, trying to search for something that he actually uh, can be good at. So it's art and uh, it's buying everything from the United States, which I, I thought was quite a nice touch because if you think about it, most consumer stuff that you buy now comes from the Far East, it comes from Taiwan, comes from China. But as a sort of a snobbish thing, oh, no, everything we're buying is coming from the US. You know, we're buying arrows so therefore, they come from the US, you know. So it must be quality. <laughs> it's not. It's not local. It's not local to the region. I thought that was very nicely done. Well, I would say regarding the kind of like the second half of the film, if we're going to make kind of plot points, but the the themes are still prevalent. Uh, the same themes still exist throughout the film. If anything, they just get heightened and more intense. And it is a very interesting film because it starts off and it is this kind of you say this kind of haphazard comedy. Uh, quite screwball and it is really kind of funny and then you're kind of on the edge of your seat and the kind of anxiety is building and you're just like what the hell is going to happen here and but it never really changes in the way that it contrasts it still feels like the same film yeah it's quite operatic in that sense it's this total balance of tragic comedy the whole way through it as it it builds and as you see the tone never shifts on a whim all you're wondering is how long they're going to get away with this and that's kind of what the film's working towards and that's how it keeps you on the hook mm-hmm. well you won't be surprised to hear this talk of a remake but it's going to be a tv an hbo tv show and it's going to focus on the events we didn't see in the film did i not hear about this somebody said mark ruffalo's been cast mark ruffalo's in uh the that well-known Asian Rimmered. actor, Mark Ruffalo, yeah. Yeah, he's rumoured to be starring in it. Uh, but just as we were saying earlier, there's so much in the film we don't see, we don't get the kind of backgrounds to X, Y and Z or see what happens in between scenes and stuff. Apparently the show's going to kind of have that and whether that's going to be revealing too much, is going to compliment it. Yeah, I feel like I, I won't need that. 
No, no, I don't think we need it either. And the thing about the film as well, of course, all the kind of themes in that are very universal when it comes to class, but it's very, very much a Korean film because those houses exist. Those kind of neighbourhoods where the small houses are kind of built in basements and that, they're real. If they're all kind of talked out on Parasite without just giving away what happens, it's a recommend for me, Mary. Absolutely, I recommend uh, for me. And I think what was really nice was that one of the award ceremonies, uh, Bong Joon-ho said, you know, if, if we can overcome the, the one-inch barrier of subtitles, we'd see a lot more cinema. And I can't stress that enough. I'm a huge proponent of, you know, expanding, you know, beyond whatever blockbusters playing in your, your local multiplex. And as John said, actually seeing good stories. I love this. Uh, and I, I think it definitely deserves um, the plaudits it's getting. Um, I think it's definitely worth watching, absolutely. John? Yep, absolutely. Thoroughly recommend it. It's a great film. I've seen it once. I'm look, looking forward to seeing it again. And also there's a, a black and white version of it coming out Yay. on the 5th of March, which I'm looking to looking forward to as well. And the director himself has said, it's a total vanity project. I love black and white films. I wanted to see what this looked like in black and white. And it's getting a sort of a limited release as well. So i probably going to try and see that as well. Or I could just turn down the colour contrast in my, <laughs> in my TV when it comes out in, in Blu-ray later on in the year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as I found out Bong Joon-ho as well, it's, uh, you can't help but like the guy. He's got an incredible kind of like childish charm about him where you see him kind of like winning and you just see how much it means to him. And it just comes across such a likeable guy that you, even if you weren't a fan of the film, you can't grudge him <laughs> his yeah. success. It looks like a guy deserves it. Yeah, it was nice the way that he went out of his way at the Oscar ceremonies to quote Martin Scorsese and thank uh, Quentin Tarantino, who was always somebody who supported him uh, in the way that he supports a lot of non-English films, just saying, you should see this film. And a lot of people would have seen a film based on a recommendation by Quentin Tarantino, let's face it. There are some bare feet in the film, so... <laughs> <laughs> So, in light of Parasite being essentially a, a long con, as one of its kind of overarching storylines, we thought we'd take a look at our favourite con movies. Um, and this was actually quite hard to, to narrow down. It turns out cinema really loves a, a swindle. And we've all picked our top three, and I'll be kicking things off with one of my favourite films for so many reasons, eh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I have such fond memories of watching this because basically my papa had like three videos when I was wee. One was River Dance, one was Dancing with Wolves and one was Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and he said that Dirty Rotten Scoundrels was the only one I was allowed to watch because the other two weren't appropriate. <laughs> Don't know what the fuck was going on in River Dance, right? But Dirty Rotten Scoundrels was the one. So obviously stars uh, Steve Martin and Michael Caine as these two fraudsters who kind of find themselves thrown together and they are determined to sort of outcon each other by trying to see who can get money off of this American heiress and it obviously all goes awry from there. They take on these different personalities. Um, at one point Steve Martin's sitting pretending to piss himself at a dinner table. He's got a cork on a fork and a eye patch on and his name is Ripwreck. And then at other points um, Steve Martin's pretending to be in a wheelchair and he can't walk and Michael Caine is literally running up the room to just whip his legs to prove that he can't feel anything and you can see Steve Martin like absolutely squirming trying to disguise the pain. It's just it's 
there's so many funny moments like and the other day when I was talking thinking about different corn films what popped into my head straight away was that woman on the plane who was like it's Fanny Eubanks of Omaha and I don't know why that scene always sticks in my head but it just makes me laugh so much I think we can probably do a wee bit of spoilers on this the film's like 20 or 30 years old they turn out to be not the con artists they think they are because they'd obviously been played by somebody else um, I won't give away too much but it's it's so much fun and it's like it's a, it's a kind of screwball comedy in this in the sense that we talked about a wee bit with Parasite it's just sort of you know you probably wouldn't get it made now because it's two white dudes taking advantage of people so you probably wouldn't get this film made now but I just I love it it's funny it's cheeky it's over the top it's ridiculous and it's two just really good actors Michael Caine and, and, and Steve Martin just clearly just really fucking enjoying themselves you can't ask for much more I have never seen it what? <laughs> <laughs> homework, Thomas. Homework. I know. I, I, nah, I've never seen it. It, it was remade, wasn't it? It was remade this or last year. It was remade as uh, the Hustle. Mm-hmm. The, oh, um, the, the a female remake, which yeah. was not very good at all. It was a very dull remake because yeah. they tried to do too many things that were too similar in in terms of the. The primary characters, the oh, Michael right. Caine character and the Steve Martin character, obviously there's a a, a real difference between uh, their acting styles, mm-hmm. and the, the way they come across on, on screen. The Michael Caine character is very reserved and a, a gentleman. Mm-hmm. Uh, li- Michael Caine being Michael Caine, yeah. Exactly, yes. Yeah. And he's funny because of that. Yeah. He doesn't need to do anything else. It's like you were talking about in Parasite. He doesn't need to... Yeah. be anything other than what what the the story demands of him so he's funny yeah. that way but with the new one no no didn't didn't work at all it was, it was all very strained i didn't realize that existed uh, and also another reason why we should just stop remaking films like just leave them as they are <laughs> it, do you know what it probably has dated a wee bit i think the last time i watched it was a couple of years ago it probably has dated a little bit but it it really is worth the watch i have such fond memories of watching it when i was wee so and now that i'm older actually watching it again i'm like my papa definitely shouldn't have let me watch this because there's some adult jokes that obviously flew over my head as a child <laughs> but now i'm looking at them going wow um, but no it's, it's really good i can't um i can't recommend enough yeah, I'm going to go with uh, the 1973 film starring the dream team of Robert Redford and Paul Newman. I am, of course, talking about The Sting. Now, my mate seen this film and he just talked about it constantly and I had never seen it. He bought me in DVD for my birthday one year and, yeah, I was just blown away by it. It's, it starts off a very simple kind of premise where Robert Redford plays a grifter called Johnny Hooker and his business partner is killed by notorious mobster Doyle Lonigan, played by the absolutely incredible, as always, Robert Shaw. John Hooker uh, wants to get his own back on Doyle, so he talks to old semi-retired con man Paul Newman's Henry Shaw Gondorf, and they basically concoct this elaborate scheme to try and get kind of like semi-revenge, get their own back, but con this mobster and try and not get murdered along the way they've also got the FBI in their tail and I don't want to say too much about the film because it's just for so many twists and turns that it's just an absolute delight of a movie, it's quite funny it's quite a drama at times as well it can be quite like oof, didn't really kind of see that coming but it is a caper it's supposed to be entertaining and it's just a lot of fun and Newman and Redford are obviously 
is well known for this is probably Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, if not mo- uh, known more so for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I think this is the best film, though. Uh, the two have an incredible chemistry that you just can't teach. Yeah, if you haven't seen the film, just please go. I'm not going to say anything too, too much more about it. Just watch it. It's it's excellent. Excellent film. Uh, have you guys seen it? Yeah, I love yeah. it. And my dad introduced me to it and he, every time I hear The Entertainer, I think of that film. I love the costumes and everything in it as well. And as you say, they've they've got this real chemistry in their partnership that it just feels really like you are kind of rooting for them, even though they're up to no good. <laughs> and, and Paul Newman uh, is just so effortlessly cool in the movie. As you see, he's kind of dressing, so you can't trill behind his little yeah. moustache and stuff. And the scene in the train, he's kind of playing with the cards and that. It's just everything about the film is just, it just oozes coolness. You want to be these people. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen this so many times. But it was one of these films, again, it was on the on the television all the time. So you can't help but catching at some point. It's a long film, but it doesn't feel mm. like it. But it just flows really really nicely i like the way it's chaptered as well the mm-hmm. you, you get it almost it's almost as if it's like a, a novelization of it and it works superbly yeah, central performances the music robert shaw who i really like anyway is just fantastic and it is a sort of the, the boo hiss <laughs> villain it totally has well. he is though it. I mean it's, that, that's the thing about the film the, the story's got a, a simplicity to it that it's yeah. like Here's the good guys, here's the bad guys, here's, here's who you're supposed to cheer, here's who you're supposed to boo. But at the same time, the plot's really complicated. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, and you don't realise that until all kind of starts to unravel, and then it's got this brilliant twist ending that just kind of like catches you for surprise, and you can't help but smile because you've also been conned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My first pick is an Argentinian film from 2000 called Nine Queens, Nueva Renas, as it was called in Argentina. That is stunning. Can you do that again? (laughs) Nueva Renas. You you, you must hear Spanish all the time. Kiss only those swear words. The way you said that there was beautiful. The film centres around two con artists, two small-time con artists, Juan and Marcos, who meet by accident uh, when Juan is carrying out a, a small con at a petrol station trying to uh, get more money in result of actually um, purchasing something. He does it once, gets away with it. The second time, he doesn't quite get away with it, and that's how uh, himself and Marcos get together. Uh, into the lab falls this scheme where they have the opportunity to sell a set of rare stamps, the nine queens in question, to, uh, I think it's a Spanish businessman who is just about to be indicted in some sort of fraud charges or something, and he's trying to get out of the country quickly, but he can't get his money out of the country, so therefore he's trying to convert as much of it as, as he can into something you can carry easily. Hence, the nine queens are worth something like um, half a million pounds, half a million dollars, I think it is. So they have these elaborate forged copies of the nine queens and they have to go about convincing uh, the businessman and the businessman's associates that they are the real deal. And obviously from there on in, the con is on. They bring a number of other people in to support them. They try and influence the the, the value, the valuator of the, the, 
the stamps as well and uh, take it from there. This is a film that, for two reasons, you really need to watch. One, the story is quite complex, it's quite tricky, and two, you're obviously reading the subtitles as well, so you're trying to get as much as you can from uh, reading the bottom of the screen and the inflection that the actors are actually putting into their, their dialogue as well, which is never easy. That is a, a stumbling block for a lot of people with subtitled films, but it's a fantastic movie. It's absolutely brilliant. It grips you right from the start and it just keeps going. The con element runs all the way through it. And obviously with a number of these con films, there's usually a heist element as well, which is obviously something we'll probably hit upon uh, with some of our, our other films here. And we could probably do a complete podcast on it uh, without any bother at all. I can think of three three heist films off the top of my head quite easily. <laughs> of course you can. <laughs> that sounds really good. I've never seen that or even heard of it, but I think I want no. to try and track it down and, and find it. It sounds good. It's one of these films that was lauded in its home country at the time and it yeah. found an audience in sort of art house cinemas. The Argentinian version of the BAFTAs, it was nominated for 28 categories and it won 21 of them. Wow. But yet, that wasn't even a selling point for sort of international markets it was it got a, a reasonably small uh, release all over another sort of continents and everything but it's one that's kind of uh, gained a bit of traction as being a, a class film that hasn't dated at all it works mm. just as well now than it did uh, almost 20 years ago i'm definitely going to try and find that yeah, I thought you were going to say it wasn't a selling point for yourself. You just fancy learning Spanish that morning. And put it on. <laughs> in no, between Korean and Russian lessons, you know? Yeah. No, Spanish is my current obsession. Um, I'm trying to learn a wee bit of that just now, just so I can ask for more than just two beers. Um, <laughs> really important for your trips to Citrus, that's for sure. Absolutely, yes. So my next choice is actually a documentary from 2012 called The Imposter. And I caught this on TV one night and I think I caught it like 15 minutes, I'd missed like the first 15 minutes or whatever. But by the end of it, I was practically inside the TV, like jaw on the floor, couldn't believe what the fuck I had just seen. So basically this family in Texas, their 16 year old son is missing. And this young guy in Spain who has a European accent, it's not, it's not quite distinguishable as being specifically French or Spanish or whatever because it's kind of a European accent i.e. not English he turns up in Spain going oh I'm their missing son and so there's this whole big thing if he has to get interviewed and they have to fly him over and he's convinced that you know I'm definitely their son and there's a whole big long convoluted story as to how he got there um this family you know they're so excited to have their son back and you're kind of watching it going he doesn't sound or look like any of the rest of you. What the fuck is going on? Like, he's clearly not even American, but sure. But you just think, do you know what? Maybe they're so overwhelmed by grief and the loss of their son that they're just willing to accept that anyone out there could be their son. And you're like, this guy's a total fucking con artist. He's taking this family for an absolute ride. What a scumbag. Then as the film progresses and they're sort of, Rumours of, oh, the neighbours saw the family digging a big hole in the garden three years ago, circa when their son went missing. You're like, they're playing each other. No wonder they're so happy to accept that this random stranger is their son. It is a brilliant true, true crime documentary. And just so many moments that you're just sitting there thinking, what? Who's kidding? Again, it's that who's kidding who sort of thing. And 
if you haven't seen it, I, I definitely recommend it. It's, if you like true crime, which I do, I, I'm, I'm Columbo at heart. And I think I can solve these things just by watching them. And in terms of, you know, as we spoke in Parasite, you know, who is who's kidding who, who's taking advantage of who, this is definitely one of those ones that will keep you thinking. I've only got the vaguest recollection of it, to be honest with you. But I remember like, watching it like, what the fuck? Yeah, I spent most of the film actually just shouting at the screen, what the fuck? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. It, it almost at the, the very start of it, you you get the the character, the imposter coming in. Mm-hmm. And I think they show you a photograph of the real person. And there's mm-hmm. nothing like him. Yeah. Absolutely. And it just goes from there. And it's it's almost like the there's a desperation in the family just to get some sort of closure, get some answers, and they're willing to accept all of these mm-hmm. uh, inconsistencies just to have somebody in their life that they think is a son, and it's it's kind of sad that way, and it's kind of heartbreaking, but at the same time, you're going, really? Come on. <laughs> I'm going to go for Steven Spielberg's 2002 Catch Me If You Can, style Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hanks, Christopher Walken, and Martin Sheen. This is uh, I think this is why Spielberg's most underrated films. I mean, look at the cast right away. With DiCaprio and Hanks in the lead roles, DiCaprio playing uh, Frank Abagnale, who was a young con man who managed to convince an airline that he was a pilot. And this is a true story. And Tom Hanks plays the investigator that's after him. And it is a, a, a tale of cat and mouse, the whole film. It's a chase movie, for the most part. But it's absolutely, it's really kind of mind-blowing how this guy managed to con so many people, not just by his skills as a forger and like check fraud and things like that, but it was, you get a guy like the Capitol playing him, it shows you how the, that charm comes into it, how he can convince people of things just with a little wink and a smile and being good looking. And it, it was a con artist and he invested himself in the con and... This is a slight spoiler, so please just hit pause or skip. He was so good at being a criminal, the FBI hired them <laughs> for their anti-fraud department. Learn from the best. It makes perfect sense to do that. But yes, this is an absolute cracking film. It's great cast, great chemistry, well-told story, and quite sad at times as well a wee bit, wee bit of sadness in it a bit tragic you see how kind of lonely this life is he's leading it looks great on paper wheeling and dealing high life and stuff but there's a scene when he's, he's speaking to Tom Hanks' FBI agent on the phone and he says to him why'd you call me? he's like oh I'm just gloating because you can't catch me and I think you're calling me because you've nobody else to speak to mm-hmm. and it's like wow it's pretty heavy, it's pretty heavy. Uh, he's the closest thing he's got to a friend, is this guy that's actually after him. And yeah, it's a brilliant film. I'd highly recommend it. Uh, I can't believe it's 2002, though. That's terrifying. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're right. I think, it's, you know, as you say, there's a lot to be said for charm and that whole sort of, you know, that old-fashioned sales technique of nodding at somebody so they nod back at you and they somehow end up going along with what you've proposed. But yeah, I think the, the sort of one of the takeaways was that the Tom Hanks character was the only person he had some sort of meaningful relationship with because they were almost sort of dependent on each other in a way. And it, it was, it, it kind of highlighted how, how lonely it was for him, even though he was, you know, jet setting and all, all these parties and all the rest of it. Like he, he had no one. Nice to be parallel with uh, Parasite, the daughter and the, 
the family. She's a bit of a forger and she has an awful lot of charm about her that she can basically get through any situation. Basically, when she was, she says at one point that she she didn't know anything about art therapy, but she just Googled it and then ad-libbed it. That's the same kind of idea as Frank Abingnail. He gets I thought you were going to say that's the same kind of idea as our podcast. <laughs> If you want to look at it that way, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that I've uh, only just <laughs> been looking up the films I'm supposed to be talking John about. John hasn't I'm seen that sexy Argentinian film that he was talking about. He just wanted to roll that off his tongue. <laughs> My second choice is the 2006 film Lucky Number Sliven. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Yep. Yep. Have uh, yes. Excellent movie. It is basically the the wrong man at the wrong time in the wrong place. It starts off as it means to go on. You are basically told this is a con movie uh, with the Bruce Willis character, Good Cat, sitting in in an airport lounge with a man and he's talking about the Kansas City Shuffle. And he explains exactly what the Kansas City Shuffle is. He says, you make everybody look right and then you go left. And that is pretty much the basis of the whole film. Film stars George Hartnett, Morgan Freeman, Ben Kingsley, Lucy Liu, there's Stanley Tucci, Bruce Willis in there as well. It's one of these all-star cast uh, sort of vehicles, and it's just a brilliant, brilliant movie. It looks fantastic. It's got a real sense of style about it from the the sort of Art Deco wallpaper, sort of all... Uh, browns and reds and everything. Every single room looks great. Josh Hartnett looks brilliant with his shirt and jumper combination in every shop when he's actually wearing <laughs> when he's wearing clothes. Obviously, there's a few <laughs> uh, scenes where all he's wearing is just a towel and a smile. Uh, and the way that the story unfolds, it's all seen from the point of the character Slevin. He is initially mistaken for another man and he gets involved with two sets of crime bosses who this other man owes money to and basically this guy is getting made uh, an example of and there's also another whole story going around that somebody's bumping off various members of these two crime syndicates uh, employees a couple of bookies get shot and things like that and nobody knows who's doing it and the story just weaves in and out of Slevin's experiences how he's actually being treated by the, the various people and how some of the other seemingly minor characters are actually coming into it if you watch it closely enough there's a lot of hints and indications about how it's going to go but the first time you watch it you're just totally drawn in by the art design by the costumes and by the performances themselves so you tend to miss a few things because you're just enjoying it so much as a spectacle but that's the kind of thing that really is good with these films because it stands up to repeat viewing and even though by the end of the film you you know exactly what's happened you still get something from it watching it, maybe a second or a third time down the line. It's very clever that way. I've only seen the film once and I well, go back and from... see it again then, for goodness sake, I've just told you. <laughs> 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 I know what's the thing, I was going to say, I can't really remember much of it at all. I remember I did really like it and I did see it. And obviously the kind of title was a kind of playing words because you keep thinking it's called Lucky Number 7. Yes. And uh, Josh Hart never happened to him. I always he thought he was terrible in films. 
he didn't really fulfil his ambition after that. I don't think he, he ended up. He was doing like a fair amount of TV work, and he's been in some some smaller roles. Still leading actor kind of material, but it's been quite mm-hmm. small roles and things, which is a bit of a shame. I actually quite liked him. I thought he was good. Uh, Penny Dreadful. He was very good in that. That was the that was oh, a Sky HBO oh, TV yeah. series. Yeah. It's good. That was great. That show. Mm-hmm. That's a cracking show that. I just think my recollections of him are Pearl Harbor, which he was quite wooden. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody was good in Pearl Harbor. Yeah, well, that's a fair point. And no, I enjoyed Lucky Number Eleven. Like, I think it had sort of like North by Northwest and almost kind of Twin Peaks kind of vibes to it, like as well. Like they're talking about like, the, the decor and stuff like that. It always reminded me of the, the gambling den in uh, Twin Peaks. And I think the sort of the whole idea of the wrong man is a. I mean, it's like one of the oldest stories in the world, but it is executed really, really well in that film. The con element in the film is actually quite subtle, and I can't really talk about it because it would spoil it. Mm-hmm. But there, there is a real sort of con element to the film. Obviously trying to tie in with the subject here. Because <laughs> <laughs> in the face of it, from what I've said, it doesn't sound like that at all. Basically, John had a plethora of con films, but as the president of the Josh Hartnett fan club, he had to try and shoehorn them <laughs> into his epic... <laughs> <laughs> hair, I must say, um, his hair looks really soft, even though it's quite styled and it's fake. It looks really soft. I, I wouldn't mind joining my fingers through it. Where did that come from? John, we all know if there's hair chat in this group, it's me running my fingers through your hair. Well, you don't get to do that to anyone else. <laughs> I know, maybe he's just patiently waiting for you to get a haircut, John, so you can post some pictures on Instagram again. Oh, they are really yep. making my heart flutter. You need to stop that. Getting those mean and moody black it's, and whites done. It's not my doing. This is all. This is the barbers. I just seem to be there when they. It's what my public in. want. Where can a barber do you go? Photoshop at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's not even just like a before and after for Instagram. It's like a full black and white like headshot. I mean, the, the term uh, something for the weekends really changed. Eh? <laughs> Standards, my dear Thomas. Standards. <laughs> You can just imagine him getting like fitted for a suit as well. I know. Totally. <laughs> totally. Not that lining Jeeves, I prefer the other one. <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go with the red this time. <laughs> oh, no. oh, right, sorry, move, moving on from uh, taking the piss out of me relentlessly. It seems we'll take the piss, but everything's a compliment. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Your head should be this size by rights. <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> well definitely before the watershed oh dear i know it's the lord's day john what are you doing <laughs> okay so my last pick and it should be no surprise what's coming is the usual suspect absolutely brilliant film one of the most sort of iconic film posters and closing scenes in sort of all of, of cinema history written by the wonderful christopher mcquarrie um and it's it is one of those films that obviously the first time you see it, it keeps you guessing right until the very end. It is a properly well-played out long con, obviously on repeat view and you know what's coming, but the first time you see it, it does really kind of keep you guessing. There's some absolutely amazing performances in there. Again, like you said about Lucky Number 11, it's a kind of all-star cast. You've got, you know, Pete Postlewaite, Giancarlo Esposito, who's Gus Frain from Breaking Bad. You've got Benicio Del Toro, you've got Gabriel Byrne, and dare I whisper it, Kevin Spacey. So obviously the whole thing is, the whole way through this film, they're all these con artists and sort of like guns for hire and it's, you know, who is 
Kaiser Sozi and that's the whole premise of the film and to this day I think it stands up it's one of the sort of best endings I think ever it's just it's so subtle and it just it's one of those films that makes when you watch it the first time and you see the ending happen you're like that's it and it is a total light bulb moment and I just I love it for that reason is there's so many as I say good individual performances but as a sort of group cast it all comes together really nicely it's super well written really really sharp and as I say it's one of the best sort of long cons I think ever played out in in cinema and even on repeat viewing when you know what's coming it still stands up as a as a as a story it's great yeah I know we're not allowed to talk about Kevin Spacey anymore so I'm just keeping a lid on it well a girl's got to try somebody's got to rehabilitate him like if Jodie Foster can do it for Mel Gibson I can do it for Kevin Spacey I don't think Jodie Foster did do it for Mel Gibson to be fair but I think she tried <laughs> perhaps a film called The Beaver wasn't the best idea given the, the circumstances I can't believe that film has been mentioned in the last two podcasts <laughs> at, least, at least the last few you mentioned The Beaver a few podcasts ago Oh, that's right. So you did. I forgot about that. John just likes fucking saying beaver. That's, that wasn't film related. <laughs> not going to rise to that one. I'm not going to <laughs> so obviously you do have seen the usual suspects. I assume pretty much everyone on the planet has. You think it still stands up? Definitely. But you know what really annoys me about seeing the usual suspects for the first time? Mm-hmm. I had the ending unintentionally ruined for me. Oh, and I mean no. unintentionally is because I had seen Scary Movie. Now, if you've all seen Scary Movie, mm-hmm. you know the ending of it parodies The Usual Suspects. Yep. I didn't know this when I watched it. I just oh. thought it was a funny ending. <laughs> and it was quite funny. <laughs> and then somebody said to me, oh, uh, The Usual Suspects ending. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm watching Usual Suspects going, well, I've got a rough idea what's going to happen. <laughs> I was like, I always remember one Christmas I had... Uh, bought Gosford Park on DVD and I went to stick it on and my dad went oh is that the one where so-and-so murders so-and-so and I was like I haven't seen this yet <laughs> <laughs> spoilers <laughs> again it's one of these films multiple viewings really benefits it you know I've watched it a number of times right up until uh, obviously we had to put together the Kevin Spacey bonfire and uh, get rid of everything but you know <laughs> Well, we're all kind of like can't talk about Kevin Spacey here, we're all forgetting Brian Singer's cancelled as well. Well, I deliberately mentioned written by Christopher McQuarrie and not directed by Brian Singer for that very reason. I mean, I do love Chris McQuarrie. Written by Christopher McQuarrie and starring Gabriel Byrne, uh, (laughs) Risa Del Toro, uh, the guy with the lump. Stephen Baldwin's even great in this film and I only know his two films Stephen Baldwin's been in Usual Suspects and Shark in Venice <laughs> <laughs> I've went with Christopher Nolan's Inception which as John you mentioned earlier most con films also have a heist element to them yeah. this is for all intents and purposes a heist movie but it's based around a con now the heist in this uh, movie they're not stealing anything Instead, they're planting something, and they're planting an idea. Leonardo DiCaprio, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Tom Hardy, they're a gang of con artists, basically, and mind bank robbers, for lack of a better term. <laughs> and they get hired by Ken yeah. Matonabe, who they want him to infiltrate Kelly Murphy's mind, plant an idea 
that means when he inherits his dad's company, he'll dissolve the empire. And you're like, okay, what? <laughs> it's a very <laughs> complex, complicated type idea. But the basic premise of it is they have to go into somebody's dreams and con them into doing something. And you've got Tom Hardy's character, affectionately known as Imzy, who is a forger. But he forges people by shapeshifting into them in the dream world and pretending to be them so they could help plant this idea. And the, the film is absolutely insane. I mean, visually, it's incredible. The plot's like, what the fuck is going on here? But there's also that beautiful simplicity to it as well because it is a con movie. But like all con movies, the idea would be simple. The execution always keeps you guessing. It's wild. I remember watching it in the cinema and thinking... I'm going to have to watch this like six more times to try and decipher what's going on. <laughs> I'm just such a massive, massive fan of this film. I've seen it so many times. Uh, talk about it in some more casts. Uh, recently, there are usual suspects. The cast in this is, but I mean, people also wait in this as well, uh, funnily enough. Mm-hmm. But it's just, it's just a brilliant cast. Nobody's bad in it. You get Ellen Page as well, you've got Dilate Rowell. Uh, Tom Berenger, Marion Cotillard's in it, Christ, Michael Caine. It's just so many people in this film, you forget it, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's a total modern classic. Uh, it's one of those kind of movies that I think is only going to get better of age. It's already 10 years old, which is quite scary. Oh, okay. uh, I think it's going to be looked at very favourably in years to come as a classic of this, this era. And... I think in spite of all this kind of like love I've gave it, it remains one of Nolan's most underrated movies. Do you think? I think so. I mean, it's like people kind of... I think it's often forgotten about in amongst the, the fanfare of like, The Dark Knight and films he's done recently. People kind of yeah. forget Inception is is there, I believe, anyway. Yeah, I suppose you could, actually. And I also think that for some people, it's like if they don't sort of settle into it like fairly quickly and sort of get to grips with it's a con movie but not as you know it sort of thing like it just it can maybe turn people off because it's it's a it's a very very complex like you do have to really pay attention to what it's not something you can watch on the couch and sort of be on your phone or talk like you have to properly give your attention to it and it's just a kind of it's a con of an a con type idea as like other films I've kind of mentioned have explored brilliantly. With mm-hmm. this, the con of an a con is a dream than a dream, mm-hmm. and for them to implement the idea, they have to keep going further and deeper and deeper into the dream world. And the deeper the dream world they go, that's when it starts getting it starts getting dangerous because they've got to start kind of forgetting who they are and where they are and what's real and what's not. And oh yeah, it's just. I don't want to say too much about it because if people haven't seen it, really see it, it's mind-blowing. It's, and it's one of those films as well. It was an original screenplay. Yeah. A blockbuster movie. wasn't based on anything. wasn't based on a book. wasn't based on a comic. wasn't based on a remake of anything. It made almost a billion at the box office. I think we've had this oh. argument a million times over in here. There's, there's always a place for your sort of big kind of popcorn blockbusters and your superhero movies, but... I know they always say there's only seven stories in the world, but I'm interested in the way they're being told and the more original content we can get and something that actually makes you think, you know, you can't put a price on that. My final pick is The Talented Mr. Ripley from 1999, an Anthony Minghella film, which is an adaptation of the Patricia Highsmith novel from 1955. 
It concentrates on the main character, Tom Ripley, who is a sort of down at heel uh, young man living in New York. He is mistaken for a friend of Dickie Greenleaf. Is uh, Dickie Greenleaf's father believed that he went to Princeton with him, and Tom doesn't correct him in any way. And as a consequence, Mr. Greenleaf Sr. Uh, enlists the help of Tom to basically bring his wayward son back from Italy, who uh, who has been sorry he has been living there for uh, some time off of his father's coin and basically not doing anything. His father wants him back in the fold because he wants him to take over his shipbuilding business. So Ripley heads out to Italy and meets up with. Uh, Dickie and Dickie's girlfriend and basically inveigles himself into their life. Uh, he does it in a very clever way in that he just tells him straight up why he's there. He doesn't try to pretend he's not because he's working a sort of a long con on them, which is basically he's seen their lifestyle and it's something that he aspires to and it's something that he wants to become himself. And he finds the easiest way to do that is to basically get so deep into Dickie's life that he can learn lessons from him and, in a way, take over from him as well. The problem that Ripley finds is he's not much of a planner. He plans to a certain extent, but he's got no contingencies. So when certain events happen... He's scrambling about and there's a certain amount of luck involved in the way that he gets out of certain situations and he moves into others. There's sort of fortuitous events that play in his favour based on the fact that he is regarded as being a wealthy American. And it's sort of brought to the screen in such a way that you're really tense all the time watching it because at any moment he could get caught out in a lie and Time and time again, he seems to just manage to get away with it no more. But you can tell that it's just setting up a problem for them about 20 or 30 minutes down the line in the film. Fantastic performances. Matt Damon is absolutely amazing in this. If you think about the, the roles that he'd taken up to that point, he was still very young and upcoming. But this is a very, very deep role. He's a horrible, nasty person. But he has a goal and he realises where that goal is. Up against him in sort of the, the acting stakes, we've got Gwyneth Paltrow, Jude Law as Dickie. Uh, there's a small role from uh, Kate Blanchett. There's Philip Seymour Hoffman, Jack Davenport. And then at the very end, there is uh, a very small role for Philip Baker Hall, who is just an absolute fantastic actor. If you've never seen a film, I think it's a film called um, Hard Date, he is in that, and he's just absolutely brilliant in it. But he's got a very small role in this film as a, a detective. It's just amazing, absolutely brilliant. It helps the fact that, even though I've mentioned that the uh, Tom Rid Ripley character is horrible, everybody else is horrible as well. There's no <laughs> nice characters in this whatsoever. So in a way, you, you don't know who you're supposed to be rooting for. Are you, are you meant to be rooting for Dickie? Because Dickie's a complete arse. He's just horrible all the way through the film. It's a, he's lived a life of privilege and it's, he's just, he's just not nice. The 
character played by Gwyneth Paltrow initially starts out very nice, quite uh, naive, gentle. Same sort of idea as we were, were mentioning before with the uh, Mrs. Park in Parasite. She's obviously come from wealth, she's come from money, and because of that, she's relatively gentle, relatively naive, but she changes during the course of the film as well. And she's not nice either. <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman, oh man, he's, he's the worst out of the lot of them. He's the, <laughs> when he's introduced, the first thing he does is he jumps out of a sports car and you think, guy's an arse. <laughs> you just get that instant impression. It's such a good piece of introductory acting for a character. You just hate him right from the word go. It's just absolutely brilliant. The film itself, just over two hours long, works perfectly. It felt like about 15, 20 minutes. I was actually sitting there watching it. I sat and watched it last night as a wee refresher, and I loved every single minute of it. it such a good film. Oh, I want to, I, I confessed at the beginning, before we started recording, that I had read the book but not seen the film, and I did really enjoy the book. I like Patricia Highsmith's writing. I now want to go and watch it, actually, because I, I just want to see Philip Seymour Hoffman jumping out of a sports car. I want that instant <laughs> reaction of just arse <laughs> yeah. yeah I've seen the film I've seen it years ago and I don't remember being a big fan of it uh, I do remember it not being what I thought it would be it did make me feel quite uncomfortable and obviously the way it's supposed to um, it was mm-hmm. quite tense it was quite uh, upsetting in its own kind of way because as you say nobody's really likeable in it uh, I would give it another chance though uh, I haven't seen the sequel but, Ripley's Game is that yeah John Malkovich and that looked more from I got, I got the impression I got from the trailer what I expected the talented Mr. Ripley to be. I think that the, the film and the book captures Ripley at a very young age. He's not the sort of the full con artist. Mm-hmm. He is very much learning his way. He he learns an awful lot as he goes along here. He becomes far better at what he does. And again, he's one of these characters that's very plausible because he agrees with you. He's got a very open way about him. He smiles all the time. Mm-hmm. You see him becoming the sort of the consummate con artist, and you can tell his brain's always working. He's learning as he's going along all the time. I'm deadly serious. That is our top three con movies. There's some cracking choices there. Uh, some I haven't seen, something I haven't heard of. Um, let us know what your choices are. If you agree with us, disagree, let us know at Movie Scramble on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Mail John, hang about outside his house, a big tree in the background with something could be climbing. Loads of good coverage, we're fine. Loads of good coverage. Uh, yeah. Sandy, please go and help Mary show it's locked in the attic, I think, her boyfriend <laughs> just uh, put up there with the way. <laughs> we did get an email, and not necessarily regarding corn movies, although the Big Lebowski does have elements of that. But we got an email from Andrew Dog at the Lockdown Film Festival, who has talking about the spin off of the Big Lebowski that's coming out regarding John Turturro's character, uh, Jesus, in the film called The Jesus Rules. Now, he's wanting to ask us what characters do we think, what scene-stealing characters uh, that have cameos in movies do we think deserve their own film? Well, the Philip Seymour Hoffman character from the talented Mr. Yeah. Ripley, he deserves his own film right off, you know? The further adventures, I would say, yeah. you know, as he's, Because basically, the, the, that character just basically works his way around Italy 
sleeping with <laughs> with women basically and everywhere he goes and listening to jazz. So there's a film right. In fact, that's a TV series. Don't know who would get to play him now, mind you, but, um, you know, could be interesting. Maybe yeah. the Alec Baldwin character in Glengarrigan Glen Ross, if I could speak. Oh, man, yeah, good choice. That's a cracking choice, because that is a total show-stealing scene. Yeah, like, I think that, I was trying to, like, that to me really quickly is the most obvious thing of somebody who just has a tiny little part in a film, but is something that you really, really like it's always like one of those films where you kind of you think his part's bigger than what it is because you remember it mm-hmm. more yeah. Yeah. see I would think I'm going to go with uh, Christopher Walken in True Romance because oh. he's literally in one scene the entire film yeah. almost steals the entire movie and Kelly, you, you actually you, you think he comes back in here he's such a memorable character you assume she comes back at this movie at some point he never does you could make a whole film around that character easily. Yeah, you totally could. Oh, I'm I glad they haven't. Yeah. Uh-huh. Stop giving Hollywood ideas, Thomas. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> Andrew. That was a cracking question. We do appreciate you sending that in. Uh, if anybody else has any other suggestions of uh, their favourite cameos in movies and they would like to see them in their own movie, please let us know at Movie Scramble at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and email at podcast.moviescramble.co.uk Excellent. Well, that's us in the subject of corn movies and done a little bit for the fans and answering some questions. But... It was <laughs> good to fans, doesn't it? Plural! Plural, yes. I can think of at least three people that listen to this podcast now. It's brilliant. Yeah, well, Mary hasn't been in the pub for a wee while, so give it give it a chance. She'll meet some more. <laughs> yeah, we're picking up strange fans in pubs. But it's these Dalton's Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks everybody for tuning in to the latest Movie Scramble podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. We hope you've liked our recommendations. If you haven't seen the films we've been speaking about. Please do go and see them, uh, or download them legally, of course, or stream them. Regarding Parasite, please go and see it in the cinema. It uh, deserves your attention. Any shout-outs to anybody? I would just like to say that my dad embraced technology and listened to the 1917 podcast, and John, he was absolutely thrilled that you <laughs> did the broadsword calling Danny Boy uh, shout-out. He was, he was super thrilled about that. Nice. Good stuff. Um, I don't have any shows to give to anybody because I don't talk about the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, um, it is kind of getting to lunchtime. Um, whereas me and Mary will have to go and make our sandwiches up. John's probably getting his uh, caviar uh, prepared <laughs> as we speak. Beluga baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really want you to get a t-shirt saying that. <laughs> They've started doing their own t-shirts. Been interested in some movies, kind of merchandise. Gives a shout. Oh yeah, um, definitely. Bills to pay. Uh, <laughs> thanks everybody for tuning in. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And I said, please be in touch and good night.